Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. God loves the lost, and we want to reflect the heart of God who celebrates when just one lost person is found. He rejoices, and we want to join him in rejoicing. And so last Sunday night, our share and prayer groups prayed over literally hundreds of names of people submitted by this congregation of people who are apart from Christ right now. And that was a meaningful time of prayer together. And I want you to know that it didn't end there, and it shouldn't end there. This past week, the ministry staff took all of those cards and spread them out on tables, and we prayed over those names. And the ministers and the shepherds will continue to pray over the lost, over those who are apart from Christ. And I would encourage you to do the same thing, but also, let's help be the answer to our prayers. And by that, I mean, let's take that next step with these people, the people whose names we put on these cards. Let's extend an invitation to church. Let's share our faith story. Let's ask them questions about their spiritual journey, their faith. Let's point them somehow to God. Let's share and embody the gospel with them. And in doing that, we can, in essence, at least be part of the answer to our own prayer. And certainly, we need the courage and the faith to do that. But I wanted to give you that update and also challenge us all to continue that journey of celebrating over the lost and seeking and saving the lost through the precious blood of Jesus. We're starting a new sermon series this morning, and so that means we have bookmarks in the lobby. On one side of this bookmark are the titles and the texts for this sermon series on Gideon. On the other side is the Discovery Bible Study, Eight Simple Questions that you can sit down with someone with and ask these questions and talk about what this text says about God, what it says about us, who is, is someone we can share this with, what's the takeaway for us, and then spend some time in prayer together. I would encourage you to grab one of these bookmarks. Certainly they're good to follow along with the sermon series, but more than that, they're a great tool to use in studying the Bible with others. So those are out in the lobby. I hope you'll pick one up. Well, you don't have to live in Oklahoma very long to know one thing, and that is that storms come. We have storms, don't we? Just a few months ago, we had all kinds of storms. Huge hailstorm. Uh, many of you got new roofs or probably are getting new roofs because of that. Heavy winds, rains, even tornado threats. There are storms. And so the question is, what do you do in a storm? What do you do in a storm? Now, some people, when the storms are serious, when the sirens are going off, or you can see on the, uh, the radar and the weather people are, you know, sort of 
getting us all amped up and, and ready for the storm. Some people take shelter. That seems like the wise thing to do. Some people even have a tornado plan. It's posted somewhere in the house. Everyone has a job. Get your shoes on, get the bicycle helmets, get the phone chargers, the bottled water. Who knows how long we're going to be in the safe room. Get some canned goods. I don't know what the safe plan is. We obviously don't have a very good one if I don't even know what's supposed to be on it. Something like that, I think. So there are those who take shelter. Then there are those who sort of wait and see. Keep an eye on the weather. You know, continue to go along and do the things you're doing. But just sort of be weather aware, as they say. And at the last possible moment, if you do hear the sirens, if it does seem like, you know, danger is approaching, then maybe you would take cover. But then I think there's a third group. Those are the people who move toward the storm, right? The mild version of that is this, this thing that some of us have to go outside and look at the sky because we want to see it with our own eyes, we can see it on TV, and we have people taking pictures, but we want to see it for ourselves. Just how close is it? And then the extreme version of that, of course, is the storm chaser. Those who actually go toward the storm while everyone else is trying to get out of the path of the storm. So what do you do in a storm? There's probably nothing else that is, has been used more as a metaphor for trials and adversity in life than the storm. And it works well because that's what it feels like sometimes when everything just seems to be pressing in, when your circumstances are turned upside down, when you go through a difficult season or you're going through loss or sickness or hard times. It feels like a storm is raging. And I think the same question can be asked. What do you do in those storms, the storms of life. For many people, they allow those storms to devastate them. Their faith doesn't hold up under the weight of those difficult circumstances. And those storms push them to the edge of despair and sometimes even over the edge. And they move away from God and they move away from God's people and their faith is damaged. And they can't answer the question, why would a good God allow these bad things to happen? Why would these storms come into my life? Why would God either cause this or allow it? What do you do in a storm? Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's a different alternative. What if we, consider this, what if we ran toward the storm? It's not easy, some would not advise it, but what if we embraced the storms of life? And rather than allowing those storms to push us over the edge of despair, what if we embraced them as an opportunity to see God? To see God maybe like we've never seen him before and to seek God. What if we did that? We're starting a sermon series today on the life of a judge in Israel's turbulent history. His name was Gideon. His story is told in a few chapters in the book of Judges, if you want to turn over to Judges chapter 6. But this series is really not about Gideon. It is about the God behind his story. 
Because I think by looking at Gideon's story, we can learn a lot about God. We can discover how God interacts with us. We can better understand his will for our lives. Gideon and God's people Israel were facing intense storms. Now, to be fair, many of the storms they were facing were the direct result and consequence of their own actions, their own choices. You see, Israel couldn't get out of its own way. They constantly found themselves in this loop of rebellion and redemption. You see, they were caught up in a cycle. That is the nature of their story. And maybe you can relate to this cycle. It was a cycle that began with sin and rebellion. God would say, do these things, don't do these things. And what would Israel do? They would not do the things God told them to do, and they would do the things that he told them not to do. They would sin, they would rebel, they would turn their backs on God, and God would send discipline. Calling his people back to him, he would send discipline, usually in the form of some type of oppression from other neighboring nations. Well, when Israel felt this oppression, when they felt the negative circumstances of their lives and all of this pain and this suffering, what would it do? It would draw them back to God. And they would say, God, we're so sorry. We repent. We never intended to do those things. We want to be faithful to you. We want to keep the covenant. Please forgive us. Please help us. And what would God do? People often say that God in the New Testament seems like a different God than the God of the Old Testament. That God in the Old Testament was harsh and judgmental. But look at Israel's story. So many times they would rebel against God, and so many times God would say, I'll take care of you. I'll redeem you. I'll deliver you. I'll forgive you. And that's what God would do. And he would pick them up, and he would put them back on their feet. He would dust them off. He would deliver them. And it wouldn't be long until they would do it again. They would rebel against God, and here we go all over again. Maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe that image is sort of the story of your life, or maybe a season of your life. Getting caught up in sin, feeling the consequences and the weight and the guilt of that sin, asking God for forgiveness, repenting to God, God, I'm so sorry, God, offering that forgiveness and that mercy, and then what happens? Here comes temptation all over again. And it's difficult sometimes to get out of that cycle. It certainly was for Israel. This was Israel's story. Maybe it's yours. Well, when Gideon is a judge of God's people, and by judge, it's not what we normally think of as judge, someone who sits in a big chair making judgments over court hearings. Judge in the sense of a prophetic leader of God's people. When, when Gideon is raised up as a judge, they are in the midst of a storm. They are in the midst of oppression. And so we see the story in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. 
Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And so Israel finds themselves in that oppression stage of the cycle we just looked at. But let me back up and give you a little more overall context for how they ended up there. Joshua is raised up by God to lead the people of Israel into Canaan, the promised land. And there they are told by God to keep the Torah, the law. And by keeping the law, other nations would know of God because God's people would be distinctive. They would stand out. Not necessarily better than other people, but different. Living according to God's will and God's law. Well, that was the plan. But Joshua dies. And then the book of Judges comes along and it tells us about Israel's complete moral and spiritual collapse. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that as they come into the land, they don't do what God said by driving out all the other inhabitants of the land. And the reason God wanted this is because he knew that their influence would be so strong on Israel, that Israel would eventually give in to their customs, to their ways of life, even to their ways of worship, including child sacrifices. So God says to drive them out, but they choose not to do that instead what do they do they go into the land and they begin to look just like the inhabitants of the land they don't drive them out in fact they adopt their ways of life their customs their idols their pagan worship they look just like the world around them they are not distinctive And so after we have a few judges come along, Ehud, Deborah, then by chapter 6, it's Gideon's turn to try to get Israel out of this cycle, to maybe possibly break this cycle once and for all. But what you need to know about Gideon is he was very human, very human. He's not a superhero. He's not a spiritual giant. He is actually mentioned very briefly in Hebrews chapter 11, which we sometimes call the Faith Hall of Fame, but he is anything but an example of spiritual strength and rock-solid faith. Gideon is severely flawed. He is timid. He is weak. He needs constant reassurance. He operates behind the scenes in fear, and ultimately, he will assert his own will over the will of God. As someone has said, He goes from an idol breaker to an idol maker. And yet, and here's the good news for us, God chooses to work in his life. God chooses to use him to accomplish his his will. The good news is, if God can use Gideon, if God can use this flawed, fearful man, maybe he can use me. Maybe he can use you. Maybe he can use us. 
as imperfect, as flawed as we are, maybe God can use us to accomplish his perfect will in this world. Paul would remind us of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. You see, God's M.O., God's way of operating, God's way of accomplishing his will quite often is to use imperfect people, flawed people. Why? Because it's not about the people. It's about the God working in them and through them. Well, amid the storm of intense oppression, Israel needs Gideon to stand up to do something. God is calling Gideon to take a stand, to do something, because Israel is suffering. These desert tribes from the east have marched in, they have barged into Canaan, and they are wreaking havoc. They are destroying everything. When the Israelites would plant crops to have food, these Midianites and Amalekites and all these nomadic tribes would burn them to the ground. They would even kill their livestock. So Israel is left hungry. Israel is left fearful. The text says they are hiding in caves. They are running scared. God's covenant people in God's promised land are hiding, living in fear. Man, how often do we do that? God has this incredible life of blessing for us, this incredible life of working in and through us. And what do we do? We live in fear. We run. Sometimes we run from a painful past. Sometimes we're running from oppression that we feel around us. Sometimes we're running from temptation. Satan is coming after us. We spend our lives hiding and running and living in fear. There are all types of storms, aren't there? There are all types of storms in life. As I think about the oppression And maybe that's not the right word, but it's the word from our text, so let's use it. When I think about the oppression that sometimes we face, collectively, I think about our nation right now. In many ways, the atmosphere seems unstable. It seems like there are converging elements starting to come together. That maybe a storm is brewing That as this political discourse continues to cause divisiveness and this rhetoric in the news and on social media continues to feed extremism and through all of that, morals and values are simply political missiles being launched here and there and everywhere, the gospel is being shoved to the margins. And God's people are living in fear. There is a storm brewing. But maybe as you think about the influence of aggressive paganism in our world, as you think about how it pushes Christianity to the side, 
Maybe that's overwhelming to think about. That's such a, a global issue. That's such a massive storm. I have my own storms to deal with. And maybe that's the case. Maybe your storm is more personal. Maybe even more private. Maybe no one even knows what your storm is. Maybe it's incredible loss that you're dealing with. Maybe you just can't seem to move through the loss and the pain and the grief. Maybe it's a, a physical challenge. Maybe it's a recent diagnosis. Maybe it's getting older and, and just some of the challenges that come with that. Maybe it's fear and doubt as you approach the end of life. Maybe it's financial stress. Maybe it's a marriage in constant conflict. Maybe it's kids that just cause stress in your life or parents that cause stress in your life. Maybe it's conflict in relationships. Maybe you feel the oppression of the nomadic tribes moving in and trying to destroy your sanity and rob you of your joy. Maybe you know what that's like. So let me go back to that question. What do you do? What do you do in a storm? How do you handle it? Where do you turn? I, I think there are times when we just need to take shelter. We need to surround ourselves with, with safeguards like supportive, godly people who can help us and comfort us. And we can catch our breath and, and maybe weather that, that first wave of the storm. But we can't stay there. You can't live your life in a storm shelter. So as I think about us collectively, yes, there may be a cultural storm brewing. There may be a political storm that is raging all around us. Our temptation, I think, is to adopt a bunker mentality, to go into our safe place. And when we do that, we default to defensiveness and safety. But this mentality won't work. In fact, this mentality, this defensiveness, and this retreat in safety may just kill the church. And it certainly won't engage a lost world with the gospel. The same is true for us with our personal storms. When we sit back, when we become passive, we let Satan run roughshod over our lives. And he instills in our brains, in our minds, in our hearts, these seeds of doubt and fear and anxiety. Maybe there's a better plan. Maybe there's a better way. What do you do in a storm? I want you to go back to our text, and I want you to notice what Israel does under Gideon's leadership. Verse 6 of Judges 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Just that one simple phrase carries so much weight. That one simple phrase means so much. Should Israel have cried out to the Lord all along? Absolutely. But when times got tough, when the storms came, what did they ultimately do? They cried out to their Creator. Listen, don't let the storms of life push you away from God. Let them take you, let them bring you to God. If you don't remember anything else, 
Hang on to those words. Because you will have storms. We will have storms. The church will face oppression and persecution in all different kinds and forms. But you yourself, you know this. You either are or have or will or all the above face storms. Don't let those storms push you away from God and God's people. Let them draw you to him. So if you feel oppressed, cry out to God. If you're angry, even if you're angry at God, cry out to God. If you're hurt and you're suffering, cry out to God. If your marriage is in shambles, cry out to God. If you have financial problems, cry out to God. If you don't know about the future and you feel uncertain and fearful and anxiety seems to be choking the life out of you, cry out to God. Listen to just a sampling of the raw and real expressions from Israel through their psalmist. Listen to these words. Psalm 34, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Psalm 55, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. 57, I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me, Psalm 72, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help, Psalm 84, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, Psalm 88, Lord, you are the God who saves me, day and night I cry out to you, in the psalm that was read earlier, Psalm 130, verse 1, out of the depths. I cry out, Lord. You see, unfortunately, so many times in my life, I have to get to the end of me before I cry out to God. Because we have this mentality, especially in our country, that says, hey, you can do this. Just pull yourself up. Pick yourself up. Be strong. Get through this. Stop crying. Stop being upset depression what is that anxiety come on be stronger than that and we think we have to do it on our own that's foolishness God says I'm right here look to me lean on me cry out to me so often we have to get to the end of me before we cry out to God But it's in those times, those times when we need God the most. And it's in those times when he will do what he says he will do when we put that burden onto his shoulders. He will carry it. So don't let the storms take you away from God. Let them bring you to God. Let them draw you to him. So as a church family, when we see the storms coming in our world, when we see Christianity being shoved to the margins and godly morals and values being thrown away, what do we do? We fall on our knees and we cry out to God and we pray for our nation and we pray for us that we would have the courage, that we would have the compassion to engage our world with the only thing that can save it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Same thing for you. If you're going through a storm, what do you do? Don't let it destroy your faith. Don't let it push you away from God and his church. 
Let that storm propel you toward God. Seek comfort and peace and the provision that only he can provide. Cry out to God. Back in 2004, you might remember Hurricane Charlie ripped through part of Florida. And many of the signs and the billboards, as you can imagine, couldn't withstand 100-mile-per-hour winds, and so they were destroyed. But one billboard, at least one, stood up through the storm. The original advertisement on the billboard was peeled away to reveal a new message, and this was the message. We need to talk, says God. (laughs) How symbolic and how true. What do you do when the storms hit? I hope you talk to God. I hope you seek His will, His comfort, His guidance. I hope you cry out to Him. We're going to continue looking at the life of Gideon. But as we look at this first part, these first six verses in Judges 6, what do we learn about God? We learn that God is near and that God is calling us. And God is desiring us to seek him. God is not far off, as the Apostle Paul said. He is right there. So James would write in James chapter 4, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Maybe today you need to come near to God. He is calling you. He is pleading with you to find life and joy and purpose and hope in him. If we can help you on that journey, we'd be happy to do that. Maybe today you're ready to give your life to Christ, to be baptized into Christ, to put on Christ and be clothed with Christ, to have the forgiveness that Aaron talked about just a few moments ago. What a joy, what a gift. We would love to celebrate with you today. In just a moment, a couple of our shepherds and their wives are going to be in the parlor. It's a little room right behind me. You can exit the auditorium and make your way there. They'd be happy to encourage you and to pray for you. Or you can come down to the front today. If you have a spiritual need, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.